Today on Everyday Injustice, we're going to talk about policing in America with Chief of Police Emeritus from UC Davis, Calvin Handy. Now, since Memorial Day, the nation has undergone a very interesting transformation and a discussion on race and policing following the tragic killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis at the hands of white police officers. So we're going to welcome to our show, Calvin Handy. Welcome. Welcome. Good morning, David. And it's really glad to, good to be here with you this morning. Now, it seems like you and I have been talking about race and policing for a very long time, uh, but the issue seems to be cyclical. It, it, it'll go away for a little while, and then it'll come back. Um, so I'm interested in what your reaction is as somebody who's, who was uh, in policing for several decades uh, to some of these in- incidents in Minneapolis, in Kentucky with Breonna Taylor, in Atlanta recently with Rayshard Brooks. Well, let me just say uh, from a very personal um, perspective and a very personal uh, point of view that um, well, witnessing uh, the, the, the murder of George Floyd was uh, one of the most uh, emotion-wracking and most difficult uh, uh, things I've ever seen as a, as a peace officer. And I, and, I, and I have some difficulty, even right now, uh, even talking about it because it, it is such a hurtful a hurtful thing that to see if someone loses their life like that under color of authority, uh, peace officer. Um, so, with that in, in perspective, I, I I think there's a cyclical cyclical uh, factor here, but I also believe that in terms of understanding racism and policing, you there is no way that you can really take that on without also appreciating the kind of the historical trend uh, of a larger society and what that has meant for for African-Americans and people of color, and what that has meant specifically for how policing works. And I, I see a, 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 a kind of a consistent kind of historical trend that I see. You know, if you, if you think about slavery and then Jim Crow and then the isolation of African-Americans in, in a social way, and then the law and order movement out of the 1960s, the war on drugs, then, of course, the huge amount of the incarceration issues the militarization that we see now, and of course, our, our quest for community policing, I think that you can see a, a trend in there that keeps um, us looking for, well, what is the answer to this? Why are these things happening? And I also want to say within that framework that today's police agencies, many, many, many of the 18,000 agencies that are uh, in this country, they're, they're searching for answers, and there's um, good answers, and there are some answers that are not as good, but I think that um, this issue now, I am emboldened and I feel encouraged because I think our society now has reached a point where we can see this because of George Floyd. And um, I think that the, idea, the, the real issue is where do we find the answers? And um, for me, how I do that is that there is this concept um, uh, uh, that um, it's called you know, community policing. And so where did that concept come from? And then how does it compare to where policing is in this country today. And it's very interesting uh, to, to, to do this. So 191 years ago, uh, a, an aristocrat 
former prime minister of Britain by the name of Sir Robert Peel, invented this concept called policing or Peel's principles of law enforcement. 191 years ago in London, people were not wanting to be policed by the army anymore. They wanted the military gone out of a policing scenario for them because too harsh, too much violence. So Sir Robert Peel, over a number of years, worked very hard to create this concept that led to the London Metropolitan Police Department, which was at the time one of the finest departments in the world. So from that, in this comparison, so Sir Robert Peel created these uh, um, principles. They were very much scrutinized and lots and lots of skepticism and a lot of hesitation from the community because what the community was concerned about then as well as now is we don't want to be policed by a military concept. 191 years ago, people did not want that. There's no difference now. So these principles uh, were designed to speak to that. And, and then, let me just give you a, a one, one, uh, kind of one example from these principles. It's called the legitimacy principle. And it says um, the ability of the police to perform their duties is dependent upon public approval of police existence, actions, and behavior. And that's the legitimacy principle. The, the trust principle, police must secure the willing cooperation of the public and voluntary observance of the law to be able to secure and maintain public respect. And then finally, another one, police seek and preserve public favor, not by catering to public opinion, but by constantly demonstrating absolutely impartial service to the law. By ready offering of individual service and friendship to all members of society without regard to their race or social standing, and the police are the public and the public are the police. And that is known as the equity and community principle. All of this are built around a framework of sanctity for life. So 191 years ago, these principles were promulgated in London. This now, in today's uh, modern world, these principles are the basis for police regulations, police policies, and the police uh, officer's code of ethics from this basis 191 years ago. So now you have to ask, we ask ourselves, how are we doing today as compared to what the original concept of policing was? And so I think in today, uh, I think in many instances, I know we're trying very hard, but I think that um, we have got some work to do to, to live up to these, um, these principles, of course, in the modern concept. We have to also realize that um, the, the basis for um, uh, our society is of democracy. So what this model actually is, it is a, a model for guardian policing in a democratic society because repeatedly over and over, whether they're African-Americans, white people, Latinos, Asians, and anyone else, people want to be treated with respect and they want to build trust. And that's where I think, uh, particularly in the, in the interactions with African-Americans, where um, we are way off. Uh, 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 many African Americans do not feel in their communities or in many different places, they do not feel that they do not have that trust that, that is necessary for a community policing to be affected, and they do not feel as though they have the respect. And without those two ingredients, um, we have what we have, which I think uh, needs lots of work. Well, so, Calvin, let me yes. let me ask you this because um, you know this is where I. I feel like everything kind of breaks down because I I hear you when, when you say that African-Americans don't feel like they have the respect. But on the other hand, when I listen to a lot of police officers, they feel like they're wrong, that uh, they do have the respect. 
And so from your perspective, having walked in both worlds, I mean, are African-Americans correct when they say that the police don't respect them? Well, well, you know, I, I don't think that any of this, uh, and, and speaking about this, there are no, like, absolutes. So I'm, I don't mean to intend, and nor does uh, anyone mean to intend to say that blanket across the board that police departments don't try to build trust and respect for the communities that they serve, and that includes African-Americans. As I mentioned that earlier, there are many, many different variations on ethics, some unique, some that do work and some that don't, where police departments and officers are trying to, to be uh, effective in their communities and trying to see people safe. So, but I do believe that there are too many instances. You got to keep remembering. You got to keep thinking about the framework, the evolution of this framework that we're in. So I do believe that there are, in, in some instances, uh, situations where I think, like for for instance, right now, where um, if if we have a, a a trend in this country where police are militarizing, you know, and People in these communities are seeing this and looking at the effects of that, which is that people are dying. African-Americans are dying at a greater rate in the, their proportion to the city. I'm on the radio. So you got to go. Okay, go out of here. I'm sorry. That's my grandson. Close the door. Sorry about that. You can, you can cut that out, David. We'll um, edit that. So, Don't worry. Okay. Sorry. Um, so I, 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 what I'm trying to say is that I, I believe that when we see today with the advent of the of the, of the iPhone and, and the, 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 the uh, videos that we see from, from happening out there, it is, uh, you see the, 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 these operations where unarmed people, unarmed citizens are being killed um, in situations where the, the law says, well, if, if, a, if a peace officer uh, feels uh, that their life is threatened or thinks that their life is threatened, then they can use any kind of force that they want. That's a Supreme Court ruling. So you see that repeatedly in the media. It's that's the impression that you get. It's the kind of reverse of the, the stigma that's been applied to African Americans, where people say, "Well, they're they're not very and, and, and uh, they don't they don't have to get up and go, and they don't want to do this, and they don't want education." It's the stigma. It's the stereotype that 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 is broadly applied to all kinds of people who are African American. And so if you reverse that to policing, and you see peace officers killing, you know, uh, 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 folks out on the street, you, that's what you're going to think. Philando uh, uh, Castile was stopped in Minnesota 47, uh, 49 times by the police. And after that 49th time, he was killed with his wife and a child in the car. And so that's, we, that's graphic for us. We, 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 George Floyd, Eric Garner, the, the list goes on and on. So there is this societal feeling among, I know among African-Americans, and that includes me, that we have this fear um, that if an officer is going to deal with me and stop me, um, I am, I am, I get my life is now at risk. That's for real. That's the truth. Now, categorically, there is like 600,000 peace officers in this country. And so there is no way that 600,000 peace officers are out trying to kill African-Americans or anyone else. So it, in context, yes, there is. You could put you can put some uh, some some borders around this issue, but I do think that that seeing what we see and looking at uh, what we what we um, what we get to see on these uh, videos, that that feeling permeates our society, and it's a real feeling, and we want this to stop. And I think the the the, 
proliferation of this is, does not mean um, that we don't want police officers. I, I, I haven't heard anyone yet saying, look, let's get rid of all the police and everything will be fine. That's not what people want. We want respect. We want trust. We want to be protected. And of course, if we're out of control, um, then we, we have to be addressed. But there's a ready, uh, there's seemingly a, a, a use of force escalation that's beyond anything that I've really seen before. When I was a young officer in the mid-70s, uh, you were uh, awarded and given credit for de-escalation. You know, I worked for 18 years in the city of Berkeley, and in that scenario, uh, there are, you can, you're going to meet every kind of person, from hardcore criminals, people who are mentally dysfunctional, people who are under the intoxication of alcohol or drugs, people who are just uh, confused and don't know what they're doing. And yet, if you look at the rate of individuals who are shot in a community, a very dense community like that, it's off the charts. It's very, 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 very rare. And so if they can do that in Berkeley, why can't we do it in Minnesota? Why can't we do it in New York? Why can't we do it in all the places in this country where people are concerned about their safety? Uh, we have people in our community who we they take an oath to protect us and to care for us and to work with us and to make us safer. And in return, we care for them. We work with them. We care about them. And we, we, we prize them. They would be our angels and our heroes for us. That's not how it looks because of what we're seeing today. So, yeah, we got to work on this. And I'm, I'm so, so proud of the young African-Americans and young white folks and Latinos and Asians and men and women and families who are working and trying to make change. But, yeah, I don't, I don't want to give the impression that people are, are uh, uh, anti-police, but when you see these things happening, then it looks like one kind of plane that people are working in. And that has to change. And I think we're trying really, really, really hard to do that in a number of, of instances. And so you can see, though, then the comparisons of what people were afraid about 191 years ago happening right today. And so I, I think that um, in fairness to, to police officers in my 30-year career, I don't think, I know, I've I, I never worked with an officer that I, that I saw or a witness or partic participated in any kind of abusive use of force. And the reason for it was because of our training. You know that um, the, when a peace officer goes to the police academy, they are given a very a deep instruction in the ethics of policing and the principles of law enforcement. And these are beautiful documents. You should, you should take a look at them sometimes. So when they, but when they get out of the academy, right, they, they very rarely, if ever, are confronted or, 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 or indoctrinated or are expected to adhere to those principles and those ethics in the, in the work that they do in the field. They just get, you know, they, they, they're kind of separated from them. So I think we need a system to continuously reinforce the ethics and the principles of, of, of the law enforcement, the principles of community. I think we need to uh, really ensure that we work on that respect and trust issue. That is, with that, I think a lot can be made and I think we need to also um, be much more involved in the screening of, of, uh, of folks who are going to be peace officers. Um, I don't think everyone cut out to be a, an officer because it is a dangerous profession. It is dangerous. If you look at the numbers of, of the peace officers that have been killed in the line of duty over long periods of time, it, it, there's no doubt that it's a dangerous profession. But there are ways, I think, in collaboration with uh, larger societal issues like mental health workers and social workers, that we can mitigate that this some of this work. So um, 
I think it's a, um, I think it's a, a you know, a, a, a very difficult task. But here in California, we actually have a model, and it's called it's in the Basic Academy again. It's called the Exemplary Peace Officer, and it is an outstanding model that talks about the, the orientation to the community and the allegiance to the community, the, the adherence to the code of ethics, the the, the commitment to you know the, the, the cops are doing are making a a commitment to put their butt, put their lives on the line for the people that they serve. And that's a difficult uh, thing to do. And, and, and clearly, not everyone can do it. But I think that if we could get that model, that exemplary peace officer model, out of the basic academy and reinforced in, the, in what we call in-service training, you know, on a frequent basis along with ethical training and high levels of interaction in the community, uh, I think things could change. And I'm not saying they'll change overnight, but I think it's one of the kinds of solutions that we need. We need, we need to, our, our, our policing and our political leaders and our governmental folks and our business community and our churches and our academic institutions, our families and all of this, we need to listen, we need to learn, and more importantly, we need to care about each other. And, you know, um, as an aside, I feel that the environment today, the, the airways, television, radio, um, are filled with what I what I, I would call it very sophisticated, but I mean hate speech and hate thought. Uh, in 1984, President Reagan um, um, uh, eliminated the Fairness Doctrine, which was the principle in the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, that said, look, you, you, you can't get on the radio and say things that are untrue, that are lies, that are slander, that are uh, controversial, misleading, but yet at the same time, we wanted to be able to talk about controversial issues. So I think President Reagan thought, look, and by eliminating this piece, maybe we'll open up and we'll have more free speech. Well, uh, the, one of the results has been maybe we do have more free speech, but it certainly has opened up an environment where people can go online and have certain, I think, negative stereotypes that would have been developed over society for a long period of time, uh, certain attitudes and certain, uh, you know, lack of information, real information, that's detrimental to how we think. And so it has an effect on our population. Look at how divided our society has become. And so I, I think that that contributes. Now, I'm not saying this is because of policing of our peace officers, but I'm saying that in this larger, this whole continuum, we've got this, uh, you know, this huge, um, I think, phenomena of different issues where technology, yes, we help us communicate, but then we see things that shouldn't be happening, and then we work to understand how can we seek justice here? How can we ensure that, that, uh, that our policing, that people, that we give lots of authority and deadly force to, that we, that they, we arm our officers with these with these authorities because they need that, but that we that must be under control. That must be guarded like uh, the Holy Grail, and, and we must find our way and continue to uh, make our society as safe as possible. I you I defy anyone to find groups of people out there who don't want to be and feel safe. And so there's no group that uh, that's uh, not uh, I think um, uh, related to that. And I also think that there's no um, um, no, um, I think real, you know, the combined effort, uh, you know, or I should say more strengthening effort across the whole country to make this happen. You know, and the reason for that is historically is because in this country, democratically, we didn't want a police state. So, as such. so that's why you have, you know, tiny podunk police departments and gigantic departments like NYPD, LAPD, and thus and so, 
but they are not you know necessarily under one giant umbrella that that works with them. So, Calvin, uh, um, yeah. so. Uh, one thing I'm wondering is when you were a police officer, I mean, did you see race? Was race an issue for you personally? Did you say race? Race, yeah. I mean, did you, you know, feel d- treated differently because of your race, or did you feel, uh, did you see other officers treating other people differently because of their race? No, I can say categorically, uh, I did not see, I've never. I saw another officer, in my opinion, treating someone differently because of their race. And let me let me let me broaden that a bit. So I was a, a chief officer at UC Berkeley, but as a you know police department, our investigations and our support for other agencies and their support for us. So we worked over a broad a group of officers. I worked with the Oakland Police Department, the San Francisco Police Department, the LA Police Department, departments all around this country, um, because because that's what our that's where our work leads to. And I can say at least. At, the, at a superficial level, I'm not talking about deep down inside somebody's mind or something, but in terms of just witnessing uh, the use of force, as I said earlier, it was about restraint and it was about uh, listening. It was about trying. You know, that was a that was this attempted revival uh, led by the Attorney General at the time um, uh, in uh, in uh, Washington D.C. who um, who um, was trying to get this community policing notion. I'm more in, in line with what people what was happening to people. But no, I can say uh, categorically, uh, even in terms of the policies that I've been related to, but in certainly in terms of actions in the field, I've stopped and on, on detentions, and I've been on many of those, um, these including drug buy bus programs and that kind of thing. I never saw um, what I believe to be straight up racism. Now, there is one uh, factor, and that is the war on drugs. Uh, well, I thought uh, war on drugs and, you know, the differences between what kind of penalty you get if you're white and you uh, have cocaine and what kind of penalty you get if you're black and have cocaine. And so there's that huge disparity there. But I think some of the drug uh, you know, issues, they, not the officers so much, but those policies themselves, I, I think that was, there's no doubt that there was a, a significant, I, I think, racism, whether it was intended or, or, or not foreseen or not. I think that that was those kind of issues were were, um, were were happening. That also relates to what President Clinton did uh, with the uh, you know the uh, what's that omnibus bill that ended up with all these people in prison. We go from 350,000 people in prison in the 1980s to 2.3 million now here in 2005. But no, no, uh, uh, I, I can't say that I've ever seen an officer do that because if I ever saw a police officer abusing someone physically emotionally or any other way, I would have intervened in that because we were trained and expected to do so. So um, why are we seeing then nationally this issue be so big? What's different about what's going on there versus what your experience was? You know, I, I feel as as though um, the, the, um, since the, the 2001, the uh, the um, attack on the, this country. Um, I feel that um, that uh, that was a kind of a wake up call, and that uh, perhaps we were not ready. And then I think the other issue that changed for us was the Columbine uh, shooting, where where no, in other words, mass killing. And so I think that a lot of the uh, focus, and, and this includes me uh, as well. Uh, we uh, we uh, for the mass killing, the old model was 
you respond, you surround the building, you wait till the SWAT team gets there. Well, now, in this world now, if someone's in, that's a hostage situation. Now, in this world now, where people are being killed, so we have to go in there. So what do we have to do? We have to get helmets. We have to get ballistic shields. We have to get stuff that we can go in there and stop someone from killing people. That has now morphed over into, as you know, um, a, a more militarized look. For example, uh, between 1997 and 1999, 11,000 police agencies in this country um, applied to the government uh, for military, military kind of equipment. That includes something like 253 aircraft, uh, 181 grenades, rocket launchers, uh, helmets, and um, uh, 7,850-some M16 rifles. So that is a... Uh, that's a militarization, and uh, it's certainly by nothing else by equipment. I think that that attitude and the fact that we have 440 million guns in our society because our legislators and people have said, no, um, we're going to let people buy as many guns as they want. So, yes, it's, it's a, that the policing has become conceptually much more dangerous. Our society is armed to the teeth. So, yeah, I think that this militarization after September 11th and mass uh, casualties and killings and more killings in our society, of course, police, uh, police officers are on the front line of this. So they're going to want to protect themselves in every way that they can. But I think that we cannot leave the fact that um, we work for the people and we must protect them uh, in the best ways that we can. And I also think that there's maybe been not enough training and um, in, um, in, uh, I think de-escalation. Uh, when I see today uh, uh, all too many videos, um, I see uh, officers who are uh, escalating, and I'm not. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not talking about all police officers because that's a, that's a different continuum. I'm talking about in many of the instances that I'm seeing, it's there. Uh, there's escalation. Hey, I've got your stop. Give me your license. Oh, you don't want to give me your license? Boom, escalation. That's very different from what from 30 or 40 years ago when I was uh, uh, out there on the streets and working with folks. So I think there's been a disconnect. Then the other part of that disconnect comes from mobility. When police officers were on foot, you know, up until the, the, the turn of the century, the early 1900s, there was an automatically, naturally, more contact. When we gave up that contact for more efficiency and greater service, so we could, we could respond to more calls, that we lost a lot of our contact. We lost a lot of our um, work in the communities because we were now much more mobile. And then, of course, under, underneath all of this lies whatever is happening in our society and how people are trained. And as again, I talked about that that uh, that chronology from slavery to Jim Crow and to uh, war on drugs, incarceration, and militarization. So yeah, it, just, it feels very different, and we have a country that's armed to the teeth. So um, yeah, I, I I think that there's um, um there's, that's what that's, in my opinion that's been the major change. There are uh, trainers out there, uh, thankfully not a lot of them, but are training certain officers in certain places uh, to be comfortable with killing someone, you know, and to be, uh, you know, like if, you, if you're in doubt, shoot first and ask questions later. I mean, I don't think that's broadly being done in policing, but that element is out there as well. So I think it's a complex uh, 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 kind of a combination of factors that, that have led to this. You've probably noticed, uh, um, and I'm thinking about Officer um, uh, Corona here in Davis, who, who gave her life, who lost her life here, but you see officers uh, walking around in their daily jobs with these black jacket-looking things on. Well, I don't, you know, that when I see it, I, as a police chief, I go, oh, my God, that's, that's not the way that you can 
can relate to people. But then I have to put myself in the mind of those officers who are on the front line and they don't know where it's going to come from. So, yeah, I think we just got to do more work in our community. And then, you know, a lot of the problems that police officers are expected to deal with, they're just not equipped to deal with it. Some of these structural issues in our society that require health care and mental health, economic equity, education, nutrition, um, policing are not designed to deal with those kinds of issues. So we, you know, if you can't, if you don't know what to do and you need some help and you're scared and you don't know what else to do, what do you do? You call the police. So that's, and that's, that's a big problem uh, that you that you raise here uh, because if you look at where they're pulling police from, you know, you get these 20-year-old kids right out of the academy. They have high school degrees. They they don't have college degrees. They often are coming from rural areas, and so they're, they're being stuck into cities where all of a sudden they're dealing with a whole bunch of issues that uh, they've never had to deal with before. And, uh, and, and we're asking them to do all sorts of things that they're not trained to do. How do we deal with that? Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think that uh, first, and, first and foremost, uh, there ought to be much more intense screening of officers for their biases and or uh, a social or racial IQ. Um, what this means is that for someone like, like you've described there, that there has to be a more extensive process to evaluate their innate and basic ability in terms of how we think that they see the world. Uh, when I came along as a cop in the, in the, the psychological examination, we were looking for more uh, psychologically uh, authoritarian people, heavy-handed people, overbearing people. We were trying to make sure we didn't hire as many of, any of those as we could. But um, And so I think we were somewhat successful with that. But I think today, uh, we, in addition to that uh, racial IQ and that the, the, the bias and the implicit bias factor, we also have to do, and I know people think maybe this is not a great word, but our, our indoctrination processes are just, I think, um, um, especially for all the, most of these small agencies, you know, the average police agency in the country is about 10 officers. So we don't have the mechanism to get the same quality and level of training for the smaller agencies as we do for the larger ones, but, but it doesn't matter. Indoctrination in the ethics and principles, racial IQ, and implicit bias and experience and those tendencies, and then heavy involvement of the community in the selection of people. So you got these young people that come from the suburbs and they're now in the inner city, or it could even be the reverse. We don't do what the community find these guys, they meet them there on the traffic stop already, right? They've never seen them before. They don't know who they are. They've never heard of them. We've got to find a way to include our community in the selection of these officers. So that the officer can get to know them, they can get to know him, and we can get the reflections in a in a fair way. Now, I don't want I'm not talking about some, you know, um, cat of you know nine tails that we got them on a rack. I'm talking about fairness to the officer and fairness to the community for which that person is serving. I don't think the leadership in policing is, does enough to reinforce that allegiance to the community. So they've got to get to know people more. They've got to be of a better sense of indoctrination to the ethics and, poli- and principles of law enforcement. And they've got to be meeting and working with folks with a high expectation that they, they, they can learn and that they've got the ability to do so. I have worked over my career with plenty of officers who come from 
small towns and small places around the country. And those officers go on to become, with the proper training, the proper indoctrination, the proper supervision, and the proper continuous training, they can they become excellent peace officers. And I find that most people who want to be in this business, uh, they want to help people. The single most important quality for me for hiring a peace officer is that this person can demonstrate that I am someone who wants to help people. I want to serve people. It's not about being a cowboy and rounding up all the stuff that you have to do. I'm not saying that's not a factor, but what we want are people who, who are, who are people-oriented, who um, want to serve and want to protect. And, and if we can get that quality into training and continuous work uh, throughout their careers, I think we can make develop them into excellent public servants. And I think we have lots of that in this country. I'm not suggesting that we don't. But we still, as you can see from the shootings of African Americans and other people in this militarization piece, we've got a, still got a quite a ways to go. But I'm encouraged by what I see. So, last question, and then we're out of time. I, I mean, are you hopeful or are you pessimistic at this point? Well, um, I am. I am. Uh, I am hopeful, and uh, I refuse to be pessimistic because I know things can change, and I believe that. Um, there is a an awareness that has been created through um, technology that things that we can see that we couldn't see for years when we read about, but that we can see. And I think that um, in this business, I was so impressed and so gratified when I saw around this country peace officers kneeling in memory and in reverence to uh, 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 George Floyd. And, and I would say. I, I think we it's, it's about care, it's about listening, it's about learning, and I want to see a whole new concept in policing that I call something like the guardian Samaritan. You know, a Samaritan is someone that's doing good, that cares about people. And it's not Rambo, it's the guardian Samaritan. And, and, and I believe that it's encapsulated in this little uh, verse that I found, learn to do right, seek justice, Defend the oppressed, take up the cause of fatherless and motherless, and plead the case of the widow. Uh, that's from Isaiah 117. And I and I feel as though if, that this country is ready for this. That that our society is actually full of wonderful, great people, and we've just got to get them a chance to get involved. And now they're doing that. So I'm very optimistic. All right. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank you for coming on our show. Well, thank you for letting me come, David. I, I, I really appreciate it, and um, I think that your show is one of the factors that if we do have change, it will be because of people like you and what you're doing to help us understand. Thank you. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. We were talking with Calvin Handy, Chief of Police Emeritus from UC Davis, and he has a very interesting perspective. It's been an interesting time to watch as uh, we started the Vanguard back in 2006 based on policing issues, and we've now seen it come back in 2014 with Ferguson and with Eric Garner and a whole host of other incidents, and now we see it coming back again. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next week for more tales from the injustice system.